Hi, I'm David Freudberg, and I'm on a mission. Since I was a high school intern in public radio back in NPR's first year on the air, I've devoted my working life to seeking out and disseminating knowledge that I hope will be enlightening and will benefit the lives of our listeners. But the grants we get, the generous support provided from foundations and some others, simply don't cover all our expenses. And if you like what you hear, we're asking for your help so we can keep this going. Please visit humanmedia.org, and at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Thanks. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Park Foundation, the Humankind Program Fund, and the SC Group, whose charitable resources include FJC, a foundation of donor-advised funds at fjc.org. The right to vote is precious, almost sacred. It is the most powerful, non-violent tool we have in a democratic society. And now a raft of recent court rulings have struck down new restrictions on who may vote. You're listening to a Humankind Special. I'm David Freudberg. Winston Churchill famously observed that democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. And sometimes citizen frustration at our system boils over, as happened in March 2016 during the Arizona presidential primary election. Officials had cut back the number of polling places by 70 percent, producing long lines of up to five hours to cast a ballot. At a later hearing of the Arizona House Elections Committee, voters voiced their displeasure. I'm a veteran Air Force, and uh, at my voting place, uh, it it was tough. There were people up there, you know, the elderly, the uh, wheelchairs, canes like myself, and we're outside in the heat. There's no place to sit. They were out of provisional ballots at 7 a.m., So the problem I had was I'm standing there, and thank goodness I've got one of these things that folds out in a little tripod. I can sit. But so many people couldn't. They wheeled up there. Then on came the sprinklers. And the folks that, yeah, that were in the wheelchairs and this type of thing, they got hosed. I counted nine workers in that small room. Two of them stood at the door limiting access inside. And when I voted, there were six voting booths. But there were only three of us casting ballots. The other booths were empty. Cars were parked bumper to bumper on both sides of the street throughout the entire residential neighborhood. I oversaw the Iraqi elections with the military police unit, and I got to tell you, they did it much better in Baghdad, Iraq, than what happened last Tuesday. Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, who lost the primary to former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, complained about the election problems. We do not know how many thousands of people who wanted to vote yesterday in Arizona did not vote. But in the United States of America, democracy is the foundation of our way of life. People should not have to wait five hours to vote. The campaigns of both Sanders and Clinton then jointly sued Arizona. They claim the sharp reduction in polling places was especially burdensome in Hispanic and African-American communities. And they said it violated the Voting Rights Act, an historic law aimed at protecting the rights of minorities. 
It was signed in the rotunda of the U.S. Capitol back in 1965 by President Lyndon B. Johnson. Three and a half centuries ago, the first Negroes arrived at Jamestown. They came in darkness and they came in chains. And today, we strike away the last major shackle of those fierce and ancient bonds. Until the Voting Rights Act, most black Americans in the Deep South were effectively prevented from voting through intimidation and prejudicial local voting rules. Now under the act, election procedures in states with a documented history of voter suppression would be supervised by the federal courts. Jurisdictions covered by the new system could be sued under Section 2 of the law if they practiced voter discrimination. Under that formula, covered jurisdictions, which have less than 25 percent of the nation's total population, they account for 56 percent of all successful published Section 2 lawsuits. Justice Elena Kagan at a 2013 U.S. Supreme Court hearing on whether the jurisdictions covered by the Voting Rights Act should remain under federal supervision. If you do that on a per capita basis, the successful Section 2 lawsuits four times higher in covered jurisdictions than in non-covered jurisdictions. The formula seems to be working pretty well in terms of going after the actual violations on the ground and who's committing them. And Congress, by large bipartisan majorities, had repeatedly renewed the Voting Rights Act, much to the chagrin of one of the justices deciding the 2013 case, Antonin Scalia, who later died. I think it is attributed very likely attributable to a phenomenon uh, that is called called, uh, perpetuation of racial entitlement. Uh, It's been written about whenever a society adopts racial entitlements, it is very difficult to get out of them through the normal political processes. And I am fairly confident it will be reenacted in perpetuity unless, unless a court can say It does not comport with the Constitution. But that summer, just as the nation marked the emotional 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King's March on Washington for civil rights, the Supreme Court, in a 5-4 to decision, invalidated federal supervision of the nine covered states, including Arizona. Chief Justice John Roberts maintained, quote, our country has changed. Former Secretary of State Colin Powell. The concern I have now is that many states are putting in place uh, procedures and new legislation that in some ways makes it a little bit harder to vote. You need a photo ID. Well, you didn't need a photo ID for decades before. Is it really necessary now? And they claim that there's widespread abuse and voter fraud, but nothing documents, nothing substantiates that. There isn't widespread abuse. The premise for requiring that voters show photo identification when they come to their polling place is to discourage voter impersonation, a fraudulent practice when someone claims to be a registered voter they are not. But meeting the ID requirements restricts who may vote. And that begs the question of whether the restriction is truly justified. 
So how much voter impersonation is there? There's no central database. The federal government doesn't keep track of this. Uh, the Republican uh, National Lawyers Group uh, had compiled their own list just from news reports from around the country of voting fraud prosecutions. So that was very limited. Nobody else was counting this up. Leonard Downey served as executive editor of the Washington Post for 17 years. He's now a professor of journalism at Arizona State University in Phoenix and led a consortium of 11 universities, which in 2012 researched the incidence of voter impersonation in the United States. So we did have to query all 50 states. We wound up sending out uh, 2,000 public records requests in order to come up with the most extensive collection of U.S. election fraud cases ever compiled, and still to this day, it's the only one. The researchers tracked voter fraud cases for the 12-year period ending in 2011. The results were stunning. It showed that there were only 10 instances of voter impersonation at the polls during that entire period in all 50 states. So given the span of a dozen years whose data was being surveyed, that comes to less than one case of in-person voter fraud per year nationwide. That's correct. On average. That's correct. So that's a that's an astoundingly low number. Yes, it is. And what we found was we found a, a more than 2,000 instances of, of uh, voter fraud of various kinds all around the country, but only 10 of those cases were, uh, were impersonation. This is similar to a study covering a slightly later period, 2000 through 2014, conducted by Loyola Law School professor Justin Levitt. His research turned up a total of 31 cases of voter impersonation throughout the country for those entire 14 years. And what about the cases of voter fraud not committed by individuals? Leonard Downey. Most of the rest were actually organized. That is to say, they weren't carried out by voters themselves, but carried out by election workers or, uh, or uh, people who are collecting absentee ballots. Downey says that falsifying these mail-in ballots is the largest kind of voter fraud found in his study. And that's significant because it's not the type that would be caught by requiring individuals to present ID in person at a polling place. So critics of voter ID rules have complained the real effect is to deter poor people and seniors. These groups disproportionately lack common forms of identification, like driver's licenses, so they may face barriers. It's access to transportation, obviously, access to, to, uh, to the offices where you don't need to go to get the identification. Uh, for older African Americans, it's, uh, it's the difficulty of obtaining a birth certificate because in many cases there were no birth certificates. They were, they were, they were born at home. Avalon, my hometown, always on my mind. Avalon, my hometown, always on my mind. You know, everybody has their own history and their own legacy. Mirna Perez monitors ballot access trends for New York University's Brennan Center for Justice. There was a time where, uh, you know, African Americans in many parts of the South weren't being allowed to 
be born in hospitals. And so, you know, if their birth certificate is really just some notation by a midwife um, that may or may not be accurate, may or may not be accepted by the state, you know, that person is not going to, you know, is going to have a really hard time getting an ID. But the governor of North Carolina, Pat McCrory, a Republican, says that these days obtaining official identification is simple enough that requiring voters to produce ID at the polls is a reasonable standard to ensure honest elections. Photo ID has become a part of our everyday life. You need a photo ID to board an airplane, to cash a check, or even apply for most government benefits. Let me be direct. Many of those from the extreme left who have been criticizing photo ID are using scare tactics. They're more interested in divisive politics than ensuring that no one's vote is disenfranchised by a fraudulent ballot. 31 states now mandate voter ID, of which 16 require a photo ID. And several opinion surveys in recent years indicate broad public support for requiring voters to bring ID to the polls. And for many people, showing identification has become routine. For the vast majority of Americans, it is not a big deal. Mirna Perez at NYU. The vast majority of Americans have access to either an ID that would qualify or they have the kind of job that would let them take a day off of work and stand in line at the, at the DMV. But we do know that a sizable amount of uh, eligible Americans, between 8 and 12 percent, do not have the kind of identification that would require people that don't have cars, that don't have flexible um, uh, work uh, schedules, people that have uh, uh, onerous uh, responsibilities in terms of their family with respect to child care, or um, people that uh, don't understand the rules, uh, people that don't have access to the underlying documents. And I think when we are discussing different state laws, we need to ask ourselves, how many barriers in front of the ballot box are we willing to put? And what is the data, what is the evidence demanding that we do so? Some of these questions have arisen since 2013 when the Supreme Court asked Congress in the Shelby case to update the Voting Rights Act, or VRA. Of all of the important civil rights laws that have been passed in the last 60 or 70 years, the most important one has been the Voting Rights Act because it has been the one that is the most effective. Representative Jim Sensenbrenner, Republican of Wisconsin, January 2014. Today we are introducing a bipartisan and bicameral response to the Supreme Court's decision in Shelby County versus Holder, which severely wrecked the uh, election protections in both parties have fought to maintain. This bill modernizes the Voting Rights Act and will restore those protections that were gutted by the court and will ensure that every citizen has an equal opportunity to participate in our democracy. But the bill has gone nowhere, a source of frustration for Washington Attorney Gerald Hebert. For more than 20 years, he served in the U.S. Justice Department, where he led numerous voting rights lawsuits. Today, Jerry is executive director of the Campaign Legal Center. In fact, the House Judiciary Committee has refused even to hold a hearing on legislation that's been offered by some of the members of Congress to restore the Voting Rights Act. Um, and it's desperately needed. And the NAACP Legal Defense Fund has a study out on their website which shows all the laws and voting discrimination that has taken place just since 2013 
that would have been blocked if the Supreme Court hadn't rendered its Shelby County decision. So the status of it is that it sits in Congress. In both houses. In both houses, in the Senate and the House. We can't get a hearing on the bill in either place because the Republicans who control the committees refuse to hold a hearing. You're listening to The Right to Vote, a Humankind special. I'm David Freudberg. To obtain an audio download or a CD of this documentary, to hear portions of interviews not included in the program, and to access related educational resources, please visit humanmedia.org. In the heated presidential election year of 2016, a flood of federal court cases have weighed in on voting procedures affecting the rights of hundreds of thousands of voters. Separate rulings for Texas, North Carolina, Wisconsin, and elsewhere have held that ID requirements are discriminatory. One court ordered that voters be allowed to sign a legal affidavit of identity. In an Ohio case, judges found that recent cutbacks in early voting periods there made it harder for blacks to cast a ballot. Reverend William Barber is president of the North Carolina NAACP. We need to embrace our deepest moral values and push for a revival of the heart of our democracy. When we fight to reinstate the power of the Voting Rights Act, And we break the interposition and nullification of the current Congress. We in the South especially know that when we do that, we are reviving the heart of our democracy. Reverend Barber's cause got a boost in July 2016 when a federal circuit court overturned North Carolina's stringent voter ID law. U.S. Attorney General Loretta Lynch. It targeted African Americans, as the court noted, with almost surgical precision, imposing stringent ID requirements, reducing same-day registration, and constraining out-of-precinct voting to place barriers between citizens and the ballot box. But North Carolina Republicans who enacted the law pushed back. Dallas Woodhouse is executive director of the state Republican Party. It is a problem that millions of North Carolinians believe there is voter fraud. They believe it. Now, somebody can disagree with them, but they believe it. And so adding confidence into the system is a very important thing. It is good for everybody. A different federal appeals court ruled the same month that a voter ID law in Texas had a prejudicial effect on African-American and Latino voters. The law had previously been defended by Ken Paxton, the Texas Attorney General. In 2011, the Texas legislature passed a photo ID law that requires that basic forms of identification photo IDs be used when you vote. Driver's licenses, concealed handgun license, passports, things like that military IDs can all be used. Millions of people have voted without problem using photo ID. And like I said, it's not that hard to get a free ID. Some of the Texans challenging the ID law were represented by attorney Gerald Hebert. During the trial of the Texas photo ID law here in D.C., we had a student who came all the way from San Antonio 
uh, to testify that she was a young student, uh, college student, a freshman, and uh, she did not have the, uh, couldn't get the ID uh, that Texas now required, photo ID that Texas was trying to push through in order to vote. And in cross-examination, the lawyers for the state of Texas said, well, how did you get here? You had to get on an airplane. And she said, yes, I showed my student ID. And they said, well, how did you get into this building, federal courthouse? She said, I showed my student ID. And my student ID is good enough to get me all the way from San Antonio, but it doesn't allow me to vote in Texas because it's not one of the IDs that Texas allows people to have. See, the, the, re the reality is when this bill was passed, Senate Bill 14 was passed, it was actually a, a solution looking for a problem. Texas State Senator Royce West. Uh, there was no problem there. And the fact is uh, it was viewed not only by us that were against it, but by the court, a very conservative court, the most conservative appellate court in the United States, as having a discriminatory effect. In accordance with the laws of the state of Florida, I hereby declare Governor George W. Bush the winner of Florida's 25 electoral votes for the President of the United States. The cliffhanger presidential election of 2000. It was a surreal moment of butterfly ballots and hanging chads. The nation watched a dizzying volley of state and federal court rulings over whether Al Gore or George W. Bush would take the White House. Florida remains a lightning rod for criticism over election procedures, including a controversial purge of thousands from the voter rolls. In 2012, the U.S. Department of Justice sued the state, alleging its policies violated federal voting law. And in 2014, U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder raised an additional concern about access to the ballot box. Across this country today, an estimated 5.8 million Americans, 5.8 million of our fellow citizens, are prohibited from voting because of current or previous felony convictions. Now, that's more than the individual populations of 31 of our states. And although well over a century has passed since post-Reconstruction states use these measures to strip African Americans of their most fundamental rights, the impact of felony disenfranchisement on modern communities of color remains both disproportionate and unacceptable. In April 2016, Virginia Governor Terry McAuliffe, a Democrat, issued an executive order immediately restoring the right to vote to 200,000 felons in that state who had served their time. I'm giving people who are now have served, they paid their debt to society. That debt was determined by a judge and a jury. And they said, this is what the debt to pay back. Once you've done that, I'm saying you can come back and be part of society. You can go back, you can have a job, you can buy a home, you can do everything else. But Virginia state legislator Chris Head accused McAuliffe of a political maneuver. It really is obvious to anybody that's paying attention that this is a direct desire to bring 200,000 new voters that will support Hillary Clinton. His whole governorship has been revolved around delivering Virginia for Hillary Clinton. In July 2016, the Virginia Supreme Court ruled that McAuliffe had overstepped his authority. Today, about one in 13 African-American adults in the U.S. is barred from voting under the disenfranchisement of felons. In three-fourths of states, felons automatically regain their voting rights upon completing their sentence. 
That was true for nonviolent offenders in Florida. But in 2011, the policy was changed to impose a waiting period of at least five years. How they got it saying that all felons is the same as hardcore felons. That's a difference. In Jacksonville, Talmadge Terrell Corps, known as Red Dog, has worked as a cook and a construction worker. He was sentenced to 15 years in federal and state prisons for drug trafficking and released in 2007. Red Dog says it's been a long and bumpy road. I ain't killed nobody. I ain't raped nobody. I sold drugs. So that's under nonviolent crime. So you telling me a nonviolent crime felon is the same as a hardcore felon? I understand. I did wrong. Okay. We all paying our debts to society. Living in life that, hey, once my debt is paid, it's supposed to be, everything's supposed to be giving my rights back to me in full. Why is it important to you to vote? It's important to me because that's where you get changes from. That's where everybody on this earth can prosper beside the upper class. When I call the upper class, the rich folks and all that. Middle class poor want to prosper too. So if that's the only way I can get my voice heard is through voting, I want to do that. Some academic research shows that restoring voting rights to felons is associated with a lower likelihood the ex-offender will repeat criminal behavior. Some probation officials believe that voting can strengthen a person's ties with the community. I asked citizens about this question outside a Winn-Dixie grocery store in Stark, Florida. When you go against our laws, a felony is not smoking pot a serious charge. They know before you commit a serious crime, this is what you can get. This is one of your penalties. Therefore, when they do that, as far as I'm concerned, their rights now become limited. Permanently? Permanently. I think they should be able to regain their rights because they paid their debt to society. You know, if they took away all of our rights, if you did something wrong, you know, nobody is perfect in this world. We all make mistakes. We're human. I'm asked, uh, do you work for a living? Yes, sir, I do. What do you do? I uh, work at the prison. You work at the prison? Going on 28 years. May I ask what you do? I'm a captain. A guard? Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Do you think granting somebody the right to vote would aid in their rehabilitation? Oh, yes, that would help. Mm-hmm. Because? Because it would show that they're getting responsibilities back and that they, their opinion is valuable to the community. The debate over who may vote in the world's most powerful democracy goes to the core of American constitutional rights, which we continue to reinterpret as times change. It also goes to how we understand human rights. University of Florida Religion and African American Studies professor Zohara Simmons. You know, compared to where we were, we have moved substantially, but of course there are the forces that are constantly trying to pull us backwards. But my profound longing is for a society where we truly could see each and every human being as 
a magnificent manifestation of God's creation and that that person is a reflection of myself. And the thing that we always learned as children, you know, um, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Uh, If that could become something that we all imbibed, I think it would be possible to develop a society where people are judged by what they bring to the effort of building a society and that we also provide for those who don't contribute and try and help them become contributing members. Listening to Humankind, I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Antonio Oliart Rose. Associate producers Mark Kilstein and David Cruz. Editorial assistants from Lisa Mullins and Kathy Graham. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Rounder Records and to Tony Buck. Our program is presented by Human Media and Connie Goldman Productions. Program development provided by Short Media. To purchase a CD copy of this program, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN. That's 1-800-5-L-I-S-T-E-N. Or visit our website where you can also obtain an audio download of this and our other programs and can hear selected episodes free. You can access free written materials related to this program as well. Our web address is humanmedia.org. Again, if you'd like to purchase a CD copy of Humankind by phone, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN. And our web address is humanmedia.org. And you can subscribe at iTunes to our free weekly podcast, Humankind on Public Radio. This segment, part two of The Right to Vote, is Humankind program number 209. The executive producer is David Freudberg. This is Humankind. To hear more episodes of Humankind, you can subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast player. A new episode each week. The podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you enjoy this program, be sure to leave us a kind review at iTunes and Stitcher. If you want to support the program, please visit humanmedia.org. And at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Again, our web address is humanmedia.org. Thanks.